Good morning, everyone. Our passage this morning is from Judges chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man, Micah, had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons, who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Thank you, Gene. Good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church. We are Getting close to the end of our series in the book of Judges, and the title of that series is Judges in Our Own Eyes. It's a play on words. It's based on the verse you just heard in chapter 17, verse 6, and also the very last verse, which reads like this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So far, so far in chapters 1 through 16, We've seen um, the same candy, different wrapper. It's basically a repeat, different people, but the same scenarios. It works like this. There's idolatry at a national level. Then there's the Lord giving them over to their sins, which in, in, entails the, their enemies having, having reign over them. Then there's pain, and they cry out. And then there's deliverance. And then there's peace and prosperity. And then there's idolatry. And it's, it's again and again and again. And each time, God raises up a different judge to deliver them. So you've seen this pattern. And they go from uh, bad to worse culturally. So that by the, by the last chapter that we just looked at in chapter 16, it's, it's really bad. Even the judge lacks moral character. So it's, it's abysmal. And you think, oh, it can only get better. Oh, no, no, no. It, it gets far, far, far worse. But there's a, there's a change in the narrative. It's different now. So it's been, let's, looking at Israel at a, at a national scale with a national deliverer. And the last, the last chapters from 17 through 21, they, 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 they pan the camera in and they zoom in on two families. We're not... Not so much, well, next week you're going to see a national catastrophe, but it, 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 it zeroes in on two families. And we're looking at one today in, in, the, in the family of Micah, the family of Micah. And next week, this is a two-part, two-part message. It's mercenary worship, worship is, is, the, is, the, is the sermon title. Part one, uh, buying God, buying God. That's what we're going to look at today. 
uh, buying God. And then part two is paying the price. So we're looking at sowing and we're looking at reaping. Let me give you a little preview. Um, the events in this message in 17 and 18 are fairly benign and boring. It's just people doing stupid stuff and worshiping in a way that God didn't prescribe. You think, it's a big yawner. And, but this is the sowing. And so we're going to see what, what mercenary worship looks like. And then next week, we're going to see what it brings, the fruit that it brings. By way of, of I don't want to say warning, but yeah, it's kind of a warning. Uh, next week, the chapters 19 through 21, probably the worst, one of the worst, it's just the worst. It's just the worst. It's, it's an event that takes place in the life of one family that is, that is absolutely horrible. And there's some sexual, uh, there, there's rape and there's brutality. And so parents, be aware. Um, if you don't want to have a conversation with your kid, don't bring them. Uh, I'm not going to get explicit. I'm not going to do anything other than read the text. But you need to know that the text is brutal. The text is absolutely brutal. I did that so you'd all come back next week. <laughs> yeah, we like brutal, don't we? Um, no, it's painful to read. It's painful to read. And this week kind of feels like, this is kind of boring. But you need to understand that boring leads to painful if you're not paying attention. What, what seems benign and seems just not all that bad, it leads to horrific consequences when it's idolatry. So that's what we're going to be taking a look at. Here's where we're going this morning. Four things. The first is the narrative, chapter 17 and 18. Uh, we won't go through it verse by verse, but I'll give you an overview of the story. It's a story of mercenary worship. It's a story of mercenary worship. The second thing we're going to look at is the nature of mercenary worship. The nature of mercenary worship. And as we look at the nature of this, you're going to find yourself, if you're paying attention, if the Lord is speaking to you, if you're sensitive, you're going to see yourself at some degree identifying as a mercenary who worships incorrectly. That's a good thing. It's painful to see that, those truths about ourselves, but that's not a bad thing. So you're going to see the nature of it. Then we're going to take a look at the scope of it. How pervasive is it? And then we're going to take a look at, lastly, at the remedy for mercenary worship. So open your Bibles to Judges chapter 17. Let's ask the Lord's mercy and, and pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us. Lord, we come to you um, in humble adoration, and we also come before you with humble dependence. We recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, I cannot preach in a way that brings you glory. Uh, Lord, apart from you, we can't even read your scripture and get anything out of it. So Spirit, we desperately need you to speak to our hearts. Prepare our hearts that we might not be mercenaries that we might worship you rightly, that we might receive your grace, your mercy, and in responding to that, love you with all of our hearts, soul, minds, and strength. Lord, we pray that this message would be uh, edifying 
And we pray, Father, that you would bring glory to yourself through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's take a look at a story of mercenary worship. First of all, a mercenary um, is primarily concerned with making money at the expense of ethics. So when you think, when somebody does something as a mercenary, whether they're literally a mercenary soldier or your worship is mercenary, the reason you're doing it, whatever it is, a mercenary does something for pay. So someone who's uh, a mercenary and they're worshiping, it's I worship in order to get something from God. It's quid pro quo. Okay, God, I'll do this, but I'm expecting that. I'll do this, you give me that. So that's, that's the essence of mercenary worship. So we're going to see what this looks like as we zoom in to one particular family in the book of Judges. So the scripture that Gene read, what we have in verses 1 through 5, it says there's a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name is Micah. He said to his mother, Mom, you remember the 1,100 pieces of silver that you uttered a curse about, that whoever stole that, may they be cursed? It was me. <laughs> Sorry. I stole your grand, and, and I've, I've brought it back. Interestingly enough, mom's not angry. She's like, oh, bless you for bringing it back. I remove the curse and I invoke a blessing. And to celebrate and show how much I love God, I'm going to take 200 pieces of that silver and I'm going to dedicate it to the Lord by making a graven image. At this point in time, you should be, you should be saying to yourself, Wait, what? Exactly. Okay, first of all, you got a son who's stealing from his mother. Now, the reason he comes and gives the money back is not because his conscience is stricken. The reason he gives the money back is because his mother has uttered a curse on the thief. He doesn't want to be cursed. Okay, these are crocodile tears. And his mother's glad to have the money back. And so she says, I'm going to dedicate it to the Lord. How much does she dedicate? 200. So it's interesting. I'm going to dedicate all of this to the Lord. Well, sort of 200, but I'm going to dedicate it to the Lord. Oh, but then I'm going to dedicate it to the Lord by constructing an idol. An idol. So she makes this idol or rather the silversmith makes the idol. And it says, verse five, and the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and a household God and ordained one of his sons who became priest. Oh, it gets even better. Now, if you're at all paying attention and you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the Levites were the, were the, uh, were the ones who were designated to serve in the tabernacle. But only the descendants of Aaron could be priests. And when they served as priests, they had to do so in the tabernacle. Now, where is Micah's shrine? His house. Where is his shrine not located? In the tabernacle. He is also not a descendant of Aaron. His son cannot be a priest of God. But never mind the details. The only thing that matters is we're sincere in our faith and our love of God, right? Can I get someone say no? See, that's the problem. That's the problem. Everyone believes that as long as they're 100% sincere, God's like, it's awesome. 
It's not awesome. It's idolatry. It's full-blown idolatry. Here's the problem. I'm getting all worked up. You know, I got up at 2.30 this morning. I've been drinking coffee all morning long. I was totally exhausted until just about 30 seconds ago. And now it's all... So calm down. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I didn't want to get up at 2.30. I just did. So anyway, that's not in the notes. My apologies. What, what we're looking at here, it looks like a minor tweak. It doesn't look... It's boring. There's nothing exciting. There's no Ehud killing Eglon. There's no Samson with a jawbone of an ass slaying Philistines. It's just some boring guy doing boring idolatry and being totally sincere in his faith with his mom. And it looks just like a little tweak to worship. Notice, they're not worshiping Baal. Who are they worshiping? The Lord God Jehovah. So shouldn't they get some credit? They're, it's what looks like a minor tweak is full-blown idolatry. In the eyes of the Lord, this is exactly, exactly what happened when they worshiped the golden calf. They said, where is this Moses character? He hasn't, who knows what happened to him? He's probably dead. Make gods that will go before us. And so they gave all of their gold and all of their jewelry, and Moses fashioned a golden calf. And they worshiped the Lord. That's what it says. They wor- the image, the golden calf, was not an idol of Baal. It was a representation of Yahweh. How many of you say, well, I, I, I don't do that. I don't have a golden image. I don't have a silver image of God. How many of you have uttered these words? You know, I like to think of God like... Have you ever thought, have you ever said that? I like to think of God as when you construct a mental image or you construct a silver image or a wooden image, what we're doing is reducing God so we can get a handle on him, so we can wrap our hands around him, so we can control him. That's what's going on here. It's the reduction of God. And they're totally sincere. They're not intending to do anything wrong. They're just intending to control God. All right. How does a person or a culture get there? Well, what's it say in verse 6? In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In their own eyes. Now, what happens next in, in verses 7 through 13, I won't read it. I'll just kind of give you a summary. This, this Levite from Judah, he shows up. And Micah and this Levite, they strike a conversation. And, and Micah's like, hey, you're a Levite. How about you? You stay here and you be a father to us and a priest to us. And I'll give you 10 pieces of silver annually and a new set of clothes every year. And the priest is like, that's a pretty sweet deal. Consider it done. And so his son is now no longer the priest because he's got a Levite as a priest. So that's a step in the right direction, right? No, he's not a descendant of Aaron. 
and he's being a priest in a shrine set up in this guy's house. It's not in the tabernacle. It's to- he legitimizes his illegitimate worship. He legitimizes in his own eyes his illegitimate worship. Oh, it gets worse though. Take a look at verse 13. I love this. Then Micah said, now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. You see what's going on here? This is mercenary worship. Now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite priest. What does that imply? It implies that he knew he was disobedient when he made his son a priest. But now he's inched closer to obedience because it's a Levite at least. So now God has to prosper him. It's still blatant disobedience. He gets better. Well, worse. So in in chapter 18, in chapter 18, these five spies from the the tribe of Dan, they still haven't fallen into their inheritance yet. Still working that out. And so they're looking for a place to settle. And so these five spies, they happen to come to Micah's residence and they hear the Levite speaking and they're like, hey, I recognize that voice. They must have been around one another in in the region of Judah. And and so they come in and they have this conversation with Micah. And they said, we're we're looking for a place to settle. Uh, Ask, inquire of the Lord whether our our journey will be a success. And so the the Levite prays and, and he says, go in grace like I do every week. He doesn't say that, but he basically says, go and be prosperous. God is with you. And so these guys go and they spy out the land and they find this one particular city. And it's like, this is the city. This is it. They're unsuspecting. They don't have anyone surrounding them to help them when we invade them. So let's take it. So they go back and they, they get their 600 warriors and, and they tell them, we found the perfect city. Let's go take it. And so on the way there, on the way there, all 600 of them stop by Micah's place. And these five are like, there's a priest there, a Levite, and they got, some, they got some idols. We should take them along so we can be blessed. And so they come along and they take all the gods out of the house. Micah's not home. We're not sure where Micah is. But the Levite's like, hey, wait a minute. You can't take my master's idols. And they say, listen, wouldn't it be better if instead of being a priest for one family, you were a priest for the whole tribe? And we'll pay you. And Micah's like, sounds like, it's not Micah. The Levite's like, sounds like a sweet deal. Promotion. Used to be the pastor of a little church of 50, but he just climbed up the ranks in the denomination. And now he's a mega church pastor. Awesome. Awesome. Not awesome. This is mercenary ministry. You see a pattern here? And why are they taking him? Because they want a blessing from God. They need a token priest. Why is this a problem? Because the priests can only serve in the tabernacle, and that's not where they're headed. So Micah shows up. Time out. What are you people doing? You're taking my priest, you're taking my idols, and they basically tell him you should shut your mouth. Unless someone angry fellow with a sword takes your life. And so Micah realizes might makes right. 
And so I'm wrong, and I'm just going to be quiet now. And that's how the story ends. Boring, right? Sort of. Sort of. You're going to see the consequences next week, but rather than look at the consequences, I want to spend some time taking a look at the nature of mercenary worship. And that is when we worship God in our own eyes. But by way of contrast, we have to see what worshiping in God's eyes looks like. Okay, so we've seen an example of a family, Micah, his mom, and the Levites, and the Danites. Everyone here is doing what is right in their own eyes. If we're going to see what, what, what worship in our own lives looks like, we need to contrast that with worship in, our, in God's eyes. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. Worshiping as God sees it in his eyes. So this is God saying, this is how you ought to worship. He says, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Do you see the contrast with that statement in verse 18 and the repeated statement in the book of Judges? So God says, I want you to do what is right in my eyes. And the Israelites are saying, I will do what's right in my eyes. Do you see the problem? That's the problem. That's the problem. Earlier in chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Lord your God is one. You see, mercenary worship is, I will do X, Y, and Z so I can get something from God. God-centered worship is, I will worship God because he is worthy of my worship. Whether I get anything or not, because he is good, because he is righteous, because he is true. So, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. I want to highlight three things, three things that will help us frame a comparison between worship in God's eyes and when we worship in uh, how, how it's right in our own eyes. Even when we're totally sincere. Three things. First of all, the view of God. When you worship the way that God wants you to worship, your view of God is he is the object of worship. Everybody is a worshiper. It doesn't matter if you don't believe in God. To worship something means to elevate something to ultimate status, to value it above all things. That's what worship is. So when you worship God in a, in a way that honors him, your view of God is he's the object. He's the most valuable, the most valuable thing. He's not a thing, but he is the most valuable noun. He's more valuable than anything else. That is what is greatest. You esteem God greater than anything else, more than your spouse, more than your children, more than gold, more than silver, more than your health, more than anything that's your view of God. Your view of religion, as God prescribes it, is the means by which you draw near to him and experience him. Religion has a place. And in and, and Deuteronomy, Exodus, Exodus through Deuteronomy, God says, here's how you are to draw near to me. I dwell above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. 
which will move around. And right now, as we're reading this, it's in a place called Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle is located. So God says, when you come before me, you have to be holy. But the problem is you're not. You're not holy. You're sinful. So I have ordained the descendants of Aaron, who are Levites, to offer sacrifices, burnt offerings, as a, as a, as a way to cover your sins so that you can come before me and experience my presence. So that's, what, that's the essence of what, of, of what we see here in, in the... In, and everything is, everything is designed by God so that God is the center. The Shiloh is here. And when they were in the wilderness, he said, okay, here's the tabernacle. And I want you to organize, organize all of the 12 tribes so that they're facing, so that they're facing the center, which is the tabernacle. And in the center of the tabernacle is the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwells above the mercy seat. So the way that it's structured, the way that it's designed is to continually point people to the power and the presence of God that, that dwells in Israel's presence. So the view of religion is a means by which you draw near to God to experience his power and his presence. And then lastly, the view of obedience is it's required. Not in order to be loved by God, but it's required as an outflow of a covenant relationship. Okay, so that's worship as God sees it in his eyes and prescribes it. That's not what we see in chapter 17, in chapter 18, or honestly, in chapter 1 through chapter 21 in the book of Judges. What we see is everyone doing what is right, including worship, in their own eyes. So, let's take a look at the nature of mercenary worship. Now, this is where I'm, I'm praying that you and I would be sensitive and open to the ways that we engage in mercenary worship, as opposed to just saying, oh, that's a very nice intellectual understanding of how other people worship incorrectly, albeit sincerely, but I obviously don't have that problem. So let's take a look. First of all, view of God. He's a vending machine. view of God. He's the big daddy that you come to when you have a need. When you don't have a need, you don't really think of him all that much. What do you think about more than anything else? That which you value most. So what drives you? What gets you up in the morning? What keeps you up at night? What do you dream about? What do you daydream about? What is the single most valuable thing to you? Is it your relationships with your children? Is it the desire for the accumulation of wealth? Is it notoriety? Is it fame? Is it fortune? What is it? Is it just to be respected by your wife for once? Is it just to be obeyed by your children for once? What is the single most important thing to you? You see, we're not talking about atheists here. We're talking about people who are Israelites who are worshiping God. But what they want out of him is to prosper. That's what Micah says. Hey, I got a Levite priest now. Now God has to prosper me. What is he telling us? He's telling us that his view of God is he's nothing more than a Coke machine outside of the break room. And what's religion? Having the correct change. 
That's what it is. It's simply making sure you have the correct change. Well, I know my son is technically not supposed to be a priest as you try to put in the crumpled up dollar bill and it keeps spitting it back out. Oh, but I got four quarters. I got a Levite priest now. Now he's got to give me the Coke. This is pathetic. View of religion is simply, how do you work the machine? Have you ever prayed for something and not received an answer? That's a rhetorical question. Okay, everybody has. Have you asked the following question? Maybe I, did I pray right? Am I the only schlub who's done that? Okay, I'm trying to figure out, maybe I didn't have the correct change. By the way, it's not wrong to wonder why your prayers haven't been answered, but if you're asking questions of mechanics in terms of how did I say the prayer, you may be viewing God as a vending machine. Maybe. I don't know your heart, but it's possible. And then lastly, view of obedience. It's totally optional. Just, you know, does, does it make you happy? Well, then obey. I, I hear this, by the way, I hope those of you who have been coming to grace for a while, you know that, that, that we are strong on biblical doctrine. Yes? Okay, good. If somebody said no, it's going to be like, I hope nobody says no. Okay, so it's very important that you understand that you and I are justified by grace through faith, and it's not by works so that no one can boast. Can we all agree on that? That's a tenet doctrine. Absolutely tenet. Is obedience optional? You'd never know that by the look of the evangelical church. I guarantee you, I can't tell you how many times I have heard when you talk about obedience and you're saying, well, you, well that's legalism. Wait, what? 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 So demanding that we're supposed to obey God because he's given everything for us is now all of a sudden legalism. I've already stated that, that we are justified by what? Grace through faith alone. But James says your faith without works is dead. So obedience is not legalism. But you will hear many people who love Jesus say that obedience is optional. Now, I'm not saying if you disobey, you lose your salvation. Because if that were true, I'm not saved. That's not what I'm saying. But understand that obedience, this this is so common in the church. And that's why the bride of Christ looks defiled. And that's why the world looks at the church and says, you people are a joke. Your divorce rate is the same as people outside of the church. Your sexual practices are not any different. You are just as materialistic as the rest of the world. And study after study and survey after survey bears this out, which indicates that a large portion of the church worships the way Micah does.
And he's totally sincere. I'm not questioning the sincerity of people's hearts, including my own. I'm questioning, and we ought to question, in whose eyes are we worshiping? Is it as what's best in our own or as the Lord dictates? So let's take it something, look, it's even more depressing. Let's get to the end here. The scope of this mercenary worship. And the people of Dan set up the carved images for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity in the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Okay, in the beginning of chapter 17, it doesn't tell you who the Levite is. Who's the Levite? Moses' grandson. You'd think if there was just one guy, if there was one guy, if there was one guy who was going to worship as God described, it's going to be the guy who gave his the grandson or the descendant of the guy who gave Israel the law. Nope. He's the guy that took the paycheck and took the job of the megachurch in Dan. Moses' descendant. What does it tell you? Nobody is exempt from mercenary worship. Who's the guy who constructed the first golden calf? His brother. And now it's his grandson. So whether it's the tribe of Judah, whether it's the tribe of Benjamin, or whether it's the tribe of Dan, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not any different than Micah, and neither are you. We have our moments where if we're honest and we're allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to us, in all our sincerity, we are worshiping as is right in our own eyes, and we don't see things the way God sees it. Sincerity is not a benchmark of faithfulness. I mean, you don't want to be insincere, but if you're sincerely worshiping God in a form which reduces him and diminishes him and treats him as an object that's there to simply give you what you really want, which is not him, it's idolatry. <laughs> this isn't funny at all, but I'm just laughing because this is so pathetic. This, I'm thinking, this is the worst series ever. This, this is worse than Ecclesiastes. I repent. Ecclesiastes is officially not the worst series I've ever preached. This is. This is totally depressing. It could be, if, that's, if we just pray and dismiss. But we're not going to. We're going to end on a good note. The remedy for mercenary worship so they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Okay, now, I'm going to milk that last phrase for all it's worth. What's at Shiloh? House of God. God still loves these people. They are worshiping him inappropriately. They are, they're full-blown idolaters, but God is still in their midst. 
And God has still prescribed a way by which they can draw near to him. They haven't chosen to do that, but he's still there. And the evangelical church in America is a hot mess. We have all sorts of issues, but he's still there. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. It won't be on the PowerPoint, but Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest, not for the tribe of Dan, not in Micah's household, but when he appeared as a baby born in Bethlehem, when he lived and walked on this earth for 33 years in sinless perfection and set his face towards Jerusalem, high priest of the good things that have come, then though the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. There is a house of God in Shiloh. It was a literal tabernacle. And eventually it became a temple in Jerusalem. And that temple held the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat where the presence of God dwelled, where all the, high, the high priest could enter one time a year during the Day of Atonement and offer a sacrifice for his sins and offer a sacrifice for the people's sins. And here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus is that high priest. And he entered into the reality of the Holy of Holies, which the tabernacle and the temple were simply a shadow foreshadowing. And he entered into heaven and he offered not the blood of bulls and goats, but he offered his own shed blood to redeem. Do you know what the word redeem means? It means to purchase. But not as a mercenary would purchase. He doesn't pay you for obedience. He paid his blood for the privilege of securing your redemption and my redemption. His perfect obedience in keeping the law, his perfect sacrifice in shedding his blood secured your redemption. He bought you with his blood. And it's all of grace. I listened to a Tim Keller sermon years ago and he was explaining this principle of grace and how Jesus gave everything and that we give nothing. We receive everything. And, and he was sharing that he was talking with this, this uh, very wealthy woman after the service and she was an upscale Manhattanite, very intelligent. She goes, so you're saying, let me get this straight. You're saying that Christ shed his blood and paid everything for me and I can do nothing for my salvation. Is that right? He, he did it all. He bought me. Yes. I don't know if I like that. And he said, how so? She says, well, if I contribute something, it's kind of like taxes. If I pay something to the government, there's a limit on what they can ask of me. But if Jesus pays everything, 
there's no limit on what he can ask of me. And Keller said, you understand completely. Do you? It matters not how sincere you are. If you're worshiping vain idols. If you are obeying so that you will prosper, your obedience is mercenary worship. There's a song, though he slay me, yet I will worship him. That's what he's, he was slain for us that we would have the privilege and the honor of receiving everything from him because he's purchased us. He's given everything and he asks for everything. So don't hold back. Reject worshiping God as is right in your own eyes. And ask the Lord to open your eyes so that you might see the depth for which he loves you. Because it's not that we loved him, but that he first loved us and gave himself for us. And then all of our worship is simply in response to that. It's all of grace, people. I mean, all of grace. And your obedience is not optional. And if some of you are wrestling with, how can you say that it's not optional if it's all of grace? Because grace, being purchased, being redeemed, means that the affections of my heart are totally transformed. I can do nothing less than give everything. And if understanding what he has done for me does not lead me to that conclusion, I'm still worshiping him as is right in my own eyes. And I am just like the Levite and just like Micah and just like his mom. But we have a better high priest who entered not an earthly tabernacle, but the Holy of Holies and gave himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. Jesus, I pray that if there's someone here yet today who is holding on to an idea about you that is It is not true, Lord. I pray that you would bring us to repentance. And Lord, thank you for grace. Thank you for grace so that we can repent. That you are not waiting to smack us down because we've been like the Levite or we've been like Micah or his mom, but you are patiently calling us to repentance. And thank you, Lord, that Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says that it is your loving kindness that leads us to repentance. Not the threat of punishment, but the promise of grace and mercy. Lord, I pray that you would draw each and every one of us to the foot of your throne, that we might enter your presence with boldness, having been ransomed, having been purchased. And Lord, for those who have not yet trusted you, I pray that today would be the day that they call out in faith, Lord Jesus, save me from my sins. Help me to worship rightly. And Lord, lead us to obedience, obedience that is not the reason for our salvation, but the product and the fruit of it. Lord, we pray that this Christ would be exalted, that he would be honored, that your bride would be made holy, and there would be revival in your church for your honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go in grace. We'll see you next week.